One of the things about connecting to the landscape of the Great War is understanding how what we see today connects to the story of the war itself. So in this week's episode, we're going to take a walk to the front line. We're going to start on the outskirts of Ypres and walk up past cemeteries, the sites of trenches, up to where the very front line was located, just on the outskirts of the village of Zillabig. So let's get our pack, strap on our boots, and head back to the old front line. The city of Ypres had been fortified by the military architect Valba in the 17th century. Rich on taxes from the European cloth trade, Ypres had once been the centre of that trade, it used its money to defend the citizens of Ypres, and a whole system of walls of ramparts were built by Valba around the city. By the time of the Great War, most of these had been dismantled, and a section remained from the Menin Gate to the Lille Gate, where we're standing now. The Menin Gate and the Lille Gate were named after the roads that ran through them. They weren't gates, they were gaps in the ramparts that allowed people and traffic, pulled by horses or mules, to continue along the roads which the gates took them to, in this case Menin or Lille. While the Menin Gate is the more famous one because of the huge memorials to the missing that exists in the last post that is sounded there every night, for most of the war, the main exit for troops out of Ypres was not the Menin Gate because that could be seen by the Germans on the high ground surrounding the city of Ypres. It was in fact where we are now, at the Lille Gate. So this was a route, a common route for soldiers to make their way to the front line. If they'd come up from the railhead near Popperinger, marched down through villages like Vlamettinger and into Ypres, perhaps been billeted in the cellars or around the Cloth Hall or St Martin's Cathedral, they would have received orders to move up to the front line, perhaps on the outskirts of the village of Zillabeek. And it's that route that we're going to take now, from here at Ypres, up through what was once the infrastructure of the old front line, up towards where the front lines were located, just on the outskirts of Zillabeek itself. Standing here with the city of Ypres behind us and a section of the ramparts running from our left with a little bridge across the road in front of us and continuing behind the buildings to our right, the ramparts were really the only feature of Ypres that survived the Great War. Their walls were so thick that not even the largest German shells could penetrate or damage them. So when we look at this really, this is the last survivor of that medieval gem of Europe, the city the medieval city of Ypres. During the war, the ramparts, having tunnels and casemates within them, were utilised by the British Army. There's a door we can see on the left, and there were dugouts here during the war. Later, that door was an entrance to one of the very first war museums here in Ypres. There are photographs of it in the 1920s, showing some of the very first battlefield pilgrims going in there. But we're going to explore the ramparts in a separate podcast another day, and we're going to begin our walk, begin our journey to the front line by walking through the ramparts, through the Lille Gate, and out into the battlefield area. As we go under the little bridge, we'll see on our left some Commonwealth War Graves Commission signs. In fact, they're Imperial War Graves Commission signs. They are the type of signpost that was used to indicate the location of cemeteries when they were established in the 1920s and 30s. When the Imperial Wargraves Commission became the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission, these signs bearing the logo of IWGC were removed and replaced by modern signage. And for many years, original cast iron signs were on this wall. Now, these are, are now copies 
because the original signs are quite rare and I suspect there was a fear that somehow they would be prized off and, and stolen. Sadly, nothing or very little is sacred these days. Emerging from the Lil Gates, we're now on a moat bridge that crosses the moat that surrounds this part of the city of Ypres. As part of the Valban fortifications, this moat had been an essential part of those defences. The walls of Ypres at that time had been pretty much impregnable. As we walk across the bridge, if we pause about halfway and look back on ourselves to our right, we'll see the graves of Rampart Cemetery. Again, we'll explore this when we come back to the ramparts one day. But it's important to remember that this is a wartime cemetery. It was there through most years of the Great War. And one of the veterans that I knew, Albert Banfield, who served here with the Royal Sussex Regiment, marched through and followed this route that we're taking now on several occasions. And not coming out of it, but coming back in one day, he noticed these graves. And he said in many respects that he and, and many of his comrades would give a nod to these men. These were men who had laid down their lives in defence of Ypres. They were the comrades who shed their blood for this ground. And it was a sacrifice that they noted and remembered. It was like a little sentinel to them, the guardians of Ypres. And there they were, still fighting for possession and defence of this ground. So with thoughts of that, we'll continue with our routes, taking the modern road across the roundabout and down towards the southern parts of the Ypres salient. The next stretch of road will bring us to a, a major road junction just up ahead, just before the railway crossing, where a road goes off to the right signpost for Kemmel, and another road goes off to the left. Before we take that road, we'll just stop here for a minute, because this was an important junction during the war itself. Many people have heard of Hellfire Corner just outside the city of Ypres, along the Menin Road, which you'd reach by coming out of the Menin Gates and marching up to the front that way. Again, that's the much more famous junction, but this was a much-used one, probably more used than Hellfire Corner during the war. This was Shrapnel Corner, so named because the Germans liberally sprinkled the ground with shrapnel shells as men moved up towards the front-line area. While certainly some units did come through here during daylight hours, and again one of the reasons why the Lille Gate was used more than the Menin Gate, is that most of this ground that we've already walked could not be seen from the German trenches surrounding Ypres. The problem with the Menin Gate is it could be. However, once you got to Shrapnel Corner, you knew that you were coming into an area of great danger. You were approaching the battlefield. So you've got to picture this now as a pavé road, a cobbled road, Men marching up from arrest billets in the southern part of the battlefield, perhaps having been out the line at Popperinger. The sound of their army boots on those cobbles hopefully being drowned out by the sound of shell fire in the far distance. And these men are marching now to an unknown fate that lies ahead in the front line positions on the battlefield. So at Shrapnel Corner we'll turn left and we'll take a road that weaves round following the railway line which is across to our right. You can just see glimpses of it as we walk along this road and it's quite a high bank and into those banks of course during the war British soldiers dug. They had dugouts in there further along near one of the archways. There was a dressing station during the war. There were gun sites in the fields because the embankment gave cover to when you dug guns in and it couldn't be seen by the German positions beyond. So this would have been a hive of activity during the war, particularly at night. That's when most activity, of course, did take place. Whether the Germans could or could not see you directly from their positions, they could see you from planes and from observation balloons. So they restricted the movement of men during the daylight hours as much as possible. 
We'll continue further down and just past the bend of the road we'll come to a farm complex on the right-hand side. This was Transport Farm, so named because this is where the battalion transport brought their wagons to and brought their equipment to. It was an important part of the infrastructure for when a unit was in the front line. We're about a mile and a bit behind where the front line trenches were located at a given point during the war. So this was a position where typically you'd have an advanced headquarters, you'd have medical facilities, advanced dressing stations were established in this farm complex as early as 1915. You'd have men from the artillery establishing a signalling post here, Royal Engineers doing the same, ensuring that the communication network between the front line, support line, reserve line and positions behind the trenches was established and maintained. In the fields close to the farm there were gun sites and if you look across to your left, just in the field there is a concrete bunker which was built amidst some of these gun positions sometime in 1916 by a field company of the Royal Engineers. When you look at this bunker it's got some strange indentations in the concrete shell of it and this is because when the concrete was still wet sandbags were pressed into the side of it and those sandbags have long since rotted away but the marks of them, the traces of them, are still there. The ghostly marks, if you like, of sandbags placed there by men more than a century ago. During the war, the farm was a hive of activity of men, particularly from the medical corps, because this was the main evacuation route for wounded from the front line. Wounded in a forward trench, you'd be evacuated by your own stretcher bearers, handed over to the medical corps, whether that was the Royal Army Medical Corps, the Canadian Army Medical Corps or any medical corps from any of the other Commonwealth nations that served here and then brought down through the communication trenches to an ADS, an advanced dressing station like this. In the summer of 1916, while the Battle of the Somme was raging further south, this was a Canadian sector of the Ypres salient. And amongst the medics, the Canadian medics who were here, was a chap called Robert Service, he was probably one of the most important Canadian poets of the 20th century, and while the war was still on, he published a volume of poetry, some of which was written here, called Rhymes of a Red Cross Man. And this became one of the best-selling books of the war. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not several million copies of it were eventually sold. You can go into second-hand bookshops even today and find many, many editions of this book. But it's poetry and Robert Service is a name that has probably disappeared into the pages of history. But yet for Canada he remains an important voice in the early years of them as a Dominion nation. Because Service wrote not only about life here on the Western Front but life in Canada before the Great War as well. Wherever you have medics you'll have padres. And another important voice, Canadian voice of that period, Canon Scott, Canon Frederick Scott, was here with the 1st Canadian Division. Padres like Scott worked out of positions like this. They weren't really encouraged to go into the trenches themselves, and some never did. But others like Scott realised that their parish was wherever the men were located, and they would regularly go up to the front line, if only just to encourage the men, take a few cigarettes, perhaps help them write some letters, or pick up some letters to be taken back to the post-corporal to make sure they went down the line and back home to families. Their role was an important one, and their role as well extended to the burial of the dead. As we continue past this farm, we see the entrance to a military cemetery, 
a cemetery named after the farm itself. This is Transport Farm Cemetery, and we'll go on in. As we emerge through the entrance here, we'll see that this is quite a large cemetery. Transport Farm Railway Dugout Cemetery, to give it its official name, the Railway Dugouts bit relates to the railway embankment that I mentioned previously, which we can see to the rear of the cemetery. And if you spend more than about half an hour or so in here, you'll probably see a train running from Kortrijk across to Ypres at the back of the cemetery. The embankment on which that railway runs had dugouts in it and part of the extension of the dressing station that was in Transport Farm itself. Now this is a wartime cemetery, so it doesn't have the neat orderly rows necessarily that a lot of the cemeteries that you visit at Ypres have. But it is a large one. There's over 1,600 British burials in here, 594 Canadian, 154 Australian, 4 Indians, 4 Germans, 3 New Zealanders and 1 soldier from the British West Indies Regiment. Of these, 430 are unnamed graves, and there are 333 special memorials, probably one of the largest number in any cemetery around Ypres. The reason for that is that this is not far from the front line. It did come under shell fire, but in April 1918, during the Battle of the Lease, Zillebeek, just up the road, was captured by the Germans, and that became the front line. So this ground was pummeled in those final months of the war. And that meant that many of the burials that had been made here previously, the crosses that marked them, were destroyed. So when this was made a permanent cemetery in the 1920s, the location of every grave could not be ascertained. So that's why there's so many special memorials here. Now this is one of the largest burial sites for Canadian soldiers in Flanders. Nearly 600 Canadians are buried here, covering most of the Canadian divisions that were on the Western Front at that time. And these are not men killed in great battles of the First World War. These are not men killed in attacks or going over the top. They are men killed in the day-to-day -day activities of trench warfare. And really the whole cemetery here, bar a plot from the Battle of Messines in June of 1917, really does reflect that. It is a, a cemetery from the attritional nature of most years of the war here in Flanders. Men killed just holding the line, facing the enemy by shell fire, by rifle grenades, by trench mortars, by sniper fire, by mines, by gas attacks. So when we look at cemeteries like this that reflect all quiet on the Western fronts, that great lie of the First World War, because really there was no part of the front that ever truly was quiet. And we see that reflected in the losses here at Transport Farm Cemetery. Among the Canadian graves that are here, are burials connected to the two Canadians that we've already mentioned. Canon Scott, who was the padre to the 14th Battalion Canadian Infantry, the Royal Montreal Regiment, there are men from his battalion that he likely buried in this cemetery. Robert Service, who was here with the Canadian Army Medical Corps, would of course treated many of the men who sadly died of their wounds. As good as the British and Commonwealth Medical Services were, they couldn't save everybody and many, many thousands of men throughout the war, right across the Western Front, died of their wounds. But it's not that connection that Robert Service has here. When he published his poems, The Rhymes of a Red Cross Man, in 1916, 
he dedicated the book to Lieutenant ANP Service, his brother, Albert. Albert was an officer in the 52nd Battalion Canadian Infantry, and he was killed by a shell in Trench 38 on Hill 60 in August of 1916. He'd only been at the front for a few weeks before he was killed. It's quite possible that Robert Service was in the dressing station the day that his brother died and may not even have realised that he'd been admitted. This was how busy these places could be and how the time of medics like Service would be occupied with tending with the wounded with no thought for themselves. As we wander around the cemetery, we see that graves here are at different angles to themselves, there are isolated burials, and again this is typical of a wartime cemetery. And there are unit plots within the cemetery as well. Plot 2 in particular contains a lot of men from the 50th Northumbrian Division, who occupied this part of the salient just outside of the city of Ypres in the early part of 1916. So we see here men from the Greenhouse, the Yorkshire Regiment, and from the Durham Light Infantry, some killed in bombardments and others killed in the explosion of enemy mines in the positions up at the front line around Hill 60. It's easy to get lost in this cemetery, and by that I mean not lose your way, but get lost in the stories of the men that are here. Because most of the men here are identified soldiers, we can read the inscriptions, we can look them up in the register, we can see who they were as human beings beyond their service in the war. It gives us that depth to visiting the battlefields of the First World War that I think is what helps bring this whole subject alive, these ordinary men in these extraordinary circumstances. So as we leave the cemetery and return to the roads, we turn right and we walk a little bit further up to a junction where we see a minor road going off to the left. And following that, it brings us to the edge of Zillabeek Lake. I like walking this part of the Ypres battlefields. It's, it's a real haven of wildlife here and you can sit on the edge of the lake with a pair of binoculars and watch the birds fly over the water and nest in the trees. I often wonder whether the soldiers themselves fascinated by wildlife did exactly the same more than a century ago. This was the largest area of water on the whole of the Ypres salient battlefields. It was in fact the old medieval water supply for the city of Ypres. The citizens of Ypres during that time had a very very good drainage and sewerage system and also a fresh water supply from this lake which obviously added to their chances of a long and hopefully prosperous life. For most of the Great War it was just behind the British front line and it was a route up to the front line. In 1918 the Germans broke through during the Battle of the Lease and the front line was very close at Hellfire Corner and on the other side of Zillabeek Village. And as you get to the far side of the lake, you can see the spire of Zillabeek Church and see how close you are to the village itself. As early as 1914, British soldiers bathed in this lake, although it must have been pretty cold to go into the water in the autumn of 1914, during the first Battle of Ypres. Obviously men long on the march, in and out of trenches, Thick with lice, dirty, would have seen a bit of water as an inviting paradise to jump into. But by the following year, with the advent of gas, going into places exposed like this on a battlefield, which gas could obviously eventually impregnate into and pollute, was not a wise thing to do. And signs were put up along the edge of the lake here, prohibiting British soldiers to go into the water. There's a high bank all round the lake, and naturally, again, during the war, British soldiers dug into this. There were rest billets here, dugouts, 
signalling positions, artillery positions and also another advanced dressing station. The Zillabik Lake or Zillabik Bund as it's often referred to on the maps is shown on the medical plans of this area during the third battle of Ypres in 1917 and mentioned in quite a lot of the war diaries. So again this would have been a hive of activity during the war and once more mainly at night as men moved to and from the front line area. The further you went across this part of the battlefields, from this side of the lake where we are now to the other, the nearer you were to the German trenches and the more likely that you would be visible during daylight hours, so movement was restricted. One of the people that I think of every time I come here is Sir John Baggett Glubb. Sir John was a regular soldier, he was a young lieutenant in the Royal Engineers when he was here at Zillabeek Lake in 1915. And many years later, he published a very good account of his war service called Into Battle that is long, sadly, out of print, but easily available from places like eBay and A Books and is a recommended memoir of the First World War. He draws some, being an engineer, I suspect he draws some very, very good little maps in there, which are great to take those with you to the battlefields and match them up and, and walk that ground connected with his stories. Anyway, in his book, he recounts an evening when his father, who was a staff officer, turned up to bring him a bit of a treat. Now, they were quite a well-to-do family, and he didn't just turn up with an envelope with a postal order in it. He turned up in a Rolls-Royce staff car with a hamper of food, probably from Fortnum and Mason's, uh, tucked in the back for his young son. So uh, quite uh, an extraordinary uh, visit there from his father and, and very different experience, I suspect, to most of the soldiers uh, who served in this part of the battlefield during the First World War. When I first joined the Western Front Association in 1982, its first patron was Sir John Baggett Glubb, and I discovered from their magazine Stand 2 that Sir John lived in Sussex. So I went to see him with my father, and we went for two reasons, really. First, I wanted to talk to him about his experiences in the Great War, but my father had met him at the end of the Second World War when Sir John had tried to enlist him into the Arab Legion that he was forming at that time. And that day that we went, they spent most of their time talking about that. But I always think of Sir John when I walk past Zillabeek Lake and his father turning up in that staff car, delivering the hamper. You get a sense from his memoir into battle that he was a decent officer and I like to think of him sharing the contents of that hamper with his sappers. So we'll continue along the path that runs just to the side of Zillabeek Lake. It'll take us round to the far end of it, Hellblast Corner, as the troops called it, another route up to the front line. And that'll bring us into the outskirts of Zillabeek Village. Ahead of us, we'll see the tower of Zillabeek Church. That's where we're heading next, to Zillabeek Churchyard. As we come into Zillabeek churchyards, we notice that, that it is a, a military burial ground. It's laid out like a normal Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery, but it is a churchyard rather than a military cemetery. There are 32 graves here, which means it doesn't qualify for a cross of sacrifice. So in many respects, it's no different than the communal cemeteries that we find scattered right across Belgium and France. This cemetery was made in 1914 and it is typical of the sort of cemeteries that were made in that early period of the war. It was rare to have separate regimental burial grounds, although there were some. It was quite common instead for the padres and medical units to bury the dead in already consecrated ground in the grounds of a church or in a communal cemetery 
uh, as one finds elsewhere. So here at Zillabeek in the autumn of 1914, as the first Battle of Ypres raged further along on the other side of Zillabeek towards Klein Zillabeek and the Menin Road, men who were killed in that part of the battlefield were brought back here for a proper burial away from the gunfire, away from the eyes of the enemy and on consecrated grounds in what looked probably very much like an English churchyard and it does to this day. One of the key cornerstones of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is the understanding that there's uniformity in death. A decision was made after the war that every headstone would be the same. So when you looked in a cemetery like this, there was nothing to tell the grave of a private from the grave of a general. They were all the same, and the government took on the payment for those. However, here we see two non-standard types of grave marker, and it shows that there were some exceptions to this. And we walk over to the first one, which is a huge tomb, and we discover the grave of Alexis Baron de Gunsberg. De Gunsberg was Russian. His family was part of Russia's aristocracy, and buried alongside him here are members of the British aristocracy, and this cemetery is often called the Aristocrat Cemetery because of this. De Gunsberg was born in Paris, and there was a big link between France and Russia before the Great War, because in the course of the Tsar of Russia, the King of Russia, they did not speak Russian, that was a peasant's language, or considered by them to be a peasant's language. They spoke by choice French, and a lot of the Russian aristocracy had interests, business and property interests in France. Many of them fled there after the Russian Revolution in 1917. So having grown up in Paris, when it came to the point where he needed to be educated, his parents made the decision to send him to one of the best schools in Europe at that time, which was Eton. So that next phase of his life gave him a childhood in England, a privileged childhood for sure, but he grew up with a generation of young men who would all go on to fight in the Great War. He had settled in Britain by 1914, and when the war broke out, all of those that he'd gone to school with quickly became officers in the guards or in cavalry regiments, and he wanted to do the same. But being a Russian, he couldn't apply for a commission in the British Army. So using some of his contacts, he was able to secure British citizenship quite quickly. And with this, he got a commission in the 11th Hussars and was posted to the Royal Horse Guards. He could speak a number of European languages, including German. So he was a very useful officer. He could interrogate prisoners. He could talk to the locals. And he found himself being used in a role that in the Napoleonic Wars, they would have called a galloper. So he was using his horse to go from headquarters to headquarters to relay information pass on intelligence and to search out intelligence himself and he was killed near Zillabeek carrying information from headquarters to Lieutenant Colonel Chesney Wilson who commanded the Royal Horse Guards who was later killed and is buried alongside him. When the war was over the de Gunsberg family came up from Paris and at this stage of course there was no information as to what would happen to graves like this, who would maintain them, who would take responsibility for them the de Gunsbergs decided not to wait for that decision and they brought with them essentially a stonemason who looked at it and worked out the plans for the grave that you see before you now. When this cemetery was made permanent, when the decision was made not to concentrate these burials and keep them here, the de Gunsbergs were asked to remove this tomb but they refused and after some debate it was decided that it would remain on the condition that if it ever degraded it would be immediately replaced by a standard headstone. In fact, what has happened here is that the Portland stone of some of the graves in this cemetery has deteriorated long before any signs of this one looking like it needs replacing. 
so it's likely that de Gunsberg's tomb will remain here for all time. I have a photograph of him from the Bond of Sacrifice, which was a roll of honour produced showing all of the officers who fell in 1914. And I'll put a picture of him from that source on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk, as well as a number of others who are buried in this churchyard beside him. And we'll go and have a look at some of their graves now. Lieutenant Colonel Gordon Chesney Wilson lies alongside de Gunsberg. He was his commanding officer. A 49-year-old, he'd brought the regiment to France in 1914. It was a cavalry unit, no doubt they thought they were coming to fight a war just like the cavalrymen of old. But when he was killed on the 6th of November 1914, he was dismounted, his horse was behind the lines, and he was in the trenches with a rifle in his hand, a very different sort of war to the one he imagined that they were heading to in August of 1914. When you stop at his grave, it's the inscription that catches your eye. It's quite a long one, and a fascinating one. It reads... Life is a city of crooked streets. Death, the marketplace where all men meet. Elsewhere in the cemetery, we have Lieutenant Henry Bly Fortescue Parnell, 5th Baron Congleton. He was educated at Eton and Oxford. He was a keen sportsman and a huntsman, and he was a master of a local hunt. Commissioned in 1912, he went to war as soon as the conflict broke out and served in the retreat from Mons and the fighting on the Aisne and the Marne, and was killed near Zillebeek on the 10th of November 1914, aged 24. The title then passed to his brother, who survived the war. Many families, many aristocratic families, were wiped out by this conflict, and it saw an end to these families. It brought that lineage to a conclusion, and the great houses that went along with these titles began to fade and crumble. One of the reasons the National Trust exists to this day is that it is a legacy of the Great War. With no sons to inherit property, the property fell into disrepair and the organisations like the National Trust took that property into its own care and make them available for the nation to see. And there can be few such properties that we visit around Great Britain that don't have a connection like this to the Great War and to the old front line. Another unusual grave marker that doesn't fit with the standard design of headstone belongs to Lieutenant John Henry Gordon Lee Steer. He was a young officer, only 19, a platoon commander from Surrey, and he was killed with the Grenadier Guards near Zillabeek on the 17th of November 1914. His well-connected parents had this special headstone that bears the badge of the Grenadier Guards erected on his grave and no doubt had a similar tussle with the Wargraves Commission as to whether it should or shouldn't be removed, but it remains to this day, two private memorials in the same cemetery. Close to Steer is Lord Bernard Charles Gordon Lennox, the third son of the Duke of Richmond. He had connections to Sussex and London, was educated at Eton and then went into Sandhurst, and was first commissioned in 1898 and fought in the Boer War, and later China. He went to France as soon as the war broke out and took part in the early battles, and was killed near Zillabeek on the 10th of November 1914, towards the end of the First Battle of Ypres. The original cross that once stood on this grave survives. It was taken back home, and it's on the wall of the church at Boxgrove near Chichester in West Sussex. There are so many connections between the First and the Second World War, and when I stand here at Gordon Lennox's grave, it's in the knowledge that here I am at the grave of a victim of the Great War, and that his wife was a victim of the Second World War, Lady Evelyn Gordon Lennox was attending a service of remembrance at the Guards Chapel in London 
on the 18th of June 1944 when it was hit by a doodle bug. Perhaps she was standing there in the final moments looking up at a memorial window to her husband just as the doodle bug struck. We can only but imagine. She was buried in Boxgrove Churchyard and her name was added to the war memorial which now contains the name of her husband killed in the First World War and her in the second. The cruel hand of war. Before we leave the churchyard, we'll stop at the grave of 2nd Lieutenant Avenel St George of the Lifeguards, another 1914 casualty buried here. His family, so distraught at the loss of their son, didn't put up a grand monument like the de Gunsbergs or the Steers. Instead, they gave money to the people of Zillebeek to help in the rebuilding of their church. And when you go into that rebuilt church, which is occasionally open, there's quite a few memorials just on the right as you step through the main entrance, including some to some French soldiers who were killed in this area in 1914. But at the back there is a large stained glass window that commemorates 2nd Lieutenant Avenel St George, and it depicts the St George slaying the dragon, and is a beautiful, practical memorial to a young life lost in the Great War. Leaving the church, we'll return to the churchyard one final time, and pause just for a moment because this is an important cemetery in many ways. This is a cemetery that gives us a good cross-section of the sort of men that were officers in the regular army on the outbreak of war in 1914. There's every rank from second lieutenant to lieutenant colonel. There's titled aristocrats. There's probably every major public school represented amongst the men who were buried here. So that title of aristocrat cemetery is a good and a just one. And these were men who led by example, who believed in that code. And when the bullets began to fly, they didn't say to their men, go on chaps, off you go, take that wood, take that hill. They said, follow me. And setting that example, they often paid for it with their own lives. And we see that here and in many places across the Western Front. So leaving the churchyard, we'll turn right. We'll head north out of Zillebeek. We'll take a small road on the right, Wuvelstraats, and follow that uphill to a point where it meets a crucifix. Here we're on a high point outside of Zillebeek. We can look back and see the spire of Zillebeek Church. And past the crucifix, we'll continue round the corner to a fork in the road where we'll turn right and follow that minor road to a high point where we've got good views across the battlefield. Here we have an excellent vista of this part of the old front line. As we come up onto the rise here, we have a spectacular view across this part of the battlefield. It's when you stand in places like this that you realise that Flanders is not flat, and that the rises in ground here afford distinct advantages to our whoever holding them, whether that be British or German in this case. With a good pair of field glasses and on a clear day you can see quite some distance from here, Passchendaele Church for example, and whenever I walk this stretch of road, I think of that excellent Great War memoir, The Unreturning Army, by Huntley Gordon. He was an officer in the 112th Brigade Royal Field Artillery and served in this area in 1917. It's a book that originally came out in the 60s, but it's been reprinted recently with a slightly longer edition. His son found some more of his father's papers, and the new edition includes those. And it's one of those books, I know so many, that is highly recommended. In July of 1917, just prior to the Third Battle of Ypres, Huntley Gordon was a forward observation officer for his unit and he came up here to spot for the guns. And this is his account of this sector of the Ypres salient. We pass through a low doorway into a large heap of brick rubble. 
which was the dormy house observation post. Here, through a concrete slot, I had my first long look through binoculars at the enemy trenches. The gunner subaltern on duty pointed out the various landmarks which were not easy to see in that monotonous landscape. First there was the area of sanctuary wood, not really a wood, only a wilderness of splintered tree stumps and certainly no place to go for sanctuary. Stirling Castle, a long grey stone mound. As I watched, a shell droned overhead and burst on it, raising a great mushroom of dust into the air. It drifted away, leaving the mound apparently unaffected. Then over to the left, more skeleton trees, identified as Glencourse Wood, Inverness Copse and Blackwatch Corner. Easy to see the jocks had left their mark on this piece of Belgium. Other names too spoke of those who had passed this way. Tower Hamlets, Clapham Junction and Surbiton Villas told of the Cockney and the suburban resident, Maple Lodge of the Canadians, Leinster Farm of the Irish. But don't think that these places could be identified by anyone but an expert. All I could see was lines and lines of sandbags alternating with hedges of rusty barbed wire, brown earth and grey splintered tree trunks. The map showed that through all this a streamlet called the Basseville Beak trickled out a couple of ponds marked Dumbarton Lakes and becoming suddenly informative it also recorded steep banks, marshy bottom two feet deep, obstacle to cavalry. I must say the idea of cavalry had not occurred to me in this context and the thought that the ordnance people might have a sense of humour became a certainty when I read in a footnote to my map the fact that an obstacle is not represented on the map does not necessarily mean that there's none there. Physical obstacles were visible in plenty thickets of tangled wire and undergrowth, and no doubt plenty of machine-gun bullets for anyone who was rash enough to show himself. The most striking thing was the absence of all movement, or of any sign of the enemy, and the brooding silence, broken only by the occasional burst of a shell. So continuing with our journey, if we'd have been here during the Great War, this is the area where we would have entered the trenches. We've come up from behind the lines via Shrapnel Corner and Transport Farm, We've walked past Zillabeek Lake and into the village of Zillabeek itself, and then beyond was this trench system. Three lines of trenches, the front line, the support line and the reserve line, and we'd have entered that reserve line somewhere here, gone up through communication trenches, the trenches that linked one line with another. They were the heavily sandbagged trenches that Huntley Gordon talks about, not just the German ones like that, but ours as well. And just across to our left from where we are, was a communication trench called the Great Wall of China, China Wall, of which a nearby cemetery is named after. We'll continue with our journey now and follow the road downhill towards a copse we can see in the hollow. This is Maple Copse, and that'll bring us to Maple Copse Cemetery. This cemetery, with obvious Canadian overtones with a name like Maple Copse, sits close to the battlefield of June 1916, where men from the Canadian Expeditionary Force what became known as the Battle of Hill 62 or Mount Sorrel. Hill 62 and the memorial, the Canadian memorial on the top of it, close to Sanctuary Wood, which we featured in a previous podcast, is seen across the fields from the cemetery from where we are now. In June 1916, Württemberg troops blew a series of mines underneath the Canadian frontline positions here and sent assault troops and flamethrowers forward and pushed the Canadians back. In a battle that followed and lasted more than a week, Canadian counterattacks pushed the Germans back and gradually regained the ground, but at some cost. The cemetery here at Maple Copse came under intense bombardment at that time, 
and very many of the graves were destroyed by shellfire. In April 1918, when the Germans broke through here in the Battle of the Lys, this ground was again subjected to heavy shellfire and was swept up in the German advance. So by the end of the conflict, only 26 of the 256 original graves could be positively identified. The rest were later marked by special memorials. There's 114 British burials here and 142 Canadians. Of these, 40 are unknown. The Canadian graves do have some from June of 1916, but are dominated by men from the 4th Canadian Division who served here before they moved down to take part in the Battle of the Somme in the late summer of 1916. This is a very quiet cemetery, a place that I've been to on quite a few evenings as the sun has set in the distance over the village of Zillabeek. The birds sing in the trees. When I was here a few weeks ago, there were chiff-chaffs singing in the trees above the cemetery. It's a place to reflect. It's a place that shows how the cruel hand of war, which we've mentioned a few times in this podcast, could blot out the final resting place of soldiers. Here we can reflect upon commemoration and sacrifice and pause for thoughts of the men who were buried here on this part of the old front line before we leave the cemetery, turn right and continue up the road until it gets to the crest of the hill. When we reach here, we're on Observatory Ridge. There's a Canadian memorial just off to our right that commemorates the battle here in June of 1916. But we'll turn left and continue along the road, up over the crest, to a point where we see some trees surrounded by a metal frame, one blue and one red. These are the trees that mark the front line in Flanders. They were planted as part of the First World War centenary to mark that front line. It was an excellent initiative to visibly show where the trenches had been. And here we are. We've come to the end of our journey. We're at the very front line, where the British trenches met no man's land, and beyond that was the German positions. There's a battalion coming up here, We'd pass through all the places we've walked, we've entered the trenches, come through those communication trenches via the reserve and the support to the front line. Now we're facing the enemy. Two long years of war from 1915 to 1917 saw battalion after battalion after battalion take the journey that we have just made. For many men, it was a one-way ticket. Thousands and thousands of soldiers perished in those two years at Ypres. Not fighting great battles, just holding the line. Many of them will have died without ever firing their weapon in the direction of the enemy. They were here keeping the German army at bay, holding the Western Front. Their sacrifice was as important as any other. They held the line, and their names dominate the memorials, the war memorials, across Britain and the Commonwealth. This is where there was all quiet on the Western Front. We might close our eyes as we stand in this landscape. We connect once more to the old front line. The ghosts of those years are somehow around us. And if we're lucky, a skylark sings above us. Man might think himself all-powerful, but despite the bombs, the bullets and the gas, nature has reclaimed these fields. This once wasteland of shell craters has returned to green, to fields, to trees, and life renews, just as it should, along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service. Tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Front Line. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor 
and the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at Old Frontline Pod. And have a look at the podcast websites, oldfrontline.co.uk. Until we meet again, along the Old Frontline.